Hey there. Um, good evening. It's five o'clock and it is November 21st. So we'll get started with our coaching for tonight. So far, we just have one person logged in. Um, so if you have anything that you'd like to speak about, oh, good. Yay. Um, hang on just a second. Let me go to this view. Okay. Hi there. Hey. Phoenix Lights. That's yes. good. Yes. I'm actually in Phoenix waiting for a flight home. And um, what I want to uh, coach on is what happens when you spend $18,000 and sign up for coach training, <laughs> which I have to tell you is um, I'm, I'm very thankful to <laughs> you and Kelly as my mentors. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is so awesome. <laughs> Are you having some um, like, Vapors thinking about the money. <laughs> yeah. Poof, it's gone. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Tell me. Congratulations, obviously. Congratulations. Yeah. That's fantastic. I thought I'd wake up today and be like, oh man, major buyer's remorse, but I don't. So must yeah, be fine. So, I mean, this this could be really helpful for people. Um, because for better or for worse. We have so many beliefs around money. I mean, a lot of right. the work that I've personally done is around my relationship with money. And you can see where that stuff comes from. I mean, talk about being conditioned by, you know, your family of origin, by right. culture and all that stuff. But I'd love to hear your thoughts around it, like how you relate to this and, you know, what does it mean? Well, I think my thoughts were, I just, you know, I've, I've been feeling very drawn to it for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think this weekend, it was like, you know, this, I can, I can easily make this back in yeah. my, you know, just changing my surgical practice. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's what the persuasion for my husband was too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, so often we look at money and we only see one side of the equation. We just see money going out. Right. We don't really see the money coming in and it's really just, it's a constant revolving door. And the other thing is, is like the investment part of it, which is really what I've learned is anytime really I'm trying to decide if it's $5, $500, $5,000, I'm like, okay, what is the purpose of this? Like, what value am I adding to, to my life? And there are some times where I'm like, well, yeah, I don't really think this is going to add value, which is basically every visit to Target I've ever made in my life. But, <laughs> right. I keep doing it. but then there are other things like around that where you're like, well, wow, I mean, that's an investment that's going to open up your life to a whole other way of being, you know? 
it's it, it literally changes how you interact with every aspect of your life when you become a coach because it's one thing to do the coaching stuff that we all do here in this group yeah. anyway and then when you take that to the next level your your own journey with it and want to be able to learn it so you can teach it to other people your your whole understanding deepens so much that your life gets even better so that's the sort of stuff you can't really put a price tag on Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's really the, what it can do for me in my, in my brain. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And I think that it really is one of these movements where when we just take responsibility for ourselves and you guys can make that mean whatever you want it to mean. But to me, I take, I make it a really big responsibility for myself. Like, can I just get myself the most aligned I can be? Can I get myself expanded? Can I get myself living in a way that just my existence takes burden off somebody else or helps them expand or helps them have comfort or eases their suffering? It really becomes an act of service even though it seems like you're really serving yourself, you are. But the whole point, I think, especially for people like us in this type of a group, it's like, no, we want to serve the, the community, the greater, the greater collective of the surgeons, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I don't know if you really (laughs) want to like to do a model or anything around that, but it just sounds like super exciting what you're going through. (laughs) I don't, th- I don't think I have a model to do on it because I, yeah. I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> good. So when, when does your training start? Uh, I was just starting to watch the videos. <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations. Let me know if you want to talk further about that. That'll be so awesome. Good. Thank you. Yeah. And you'll have to come back as a contract coach here. Yeah. It'll be so good. Um, okay. So I'll go ahead and lower your hand and then Thank you. we've got another volunteer now. Um, so let's talk to stuffing. <laughs> okay, stuffing. Hi, it's my favorite Thanksgiving food. Is it? Yes. <laughs> That's good. Um, I just got a new brand because I don't make it from scratch. What brand are you doing? I got I've never made it from scratch either. I got the Bodine, Bodin, Bodine, Boudine, I don't know, B O U D I N sourdough okay. stuffing mix oh fancy. okay <laughs> you'll let have to you let know. us know how it is <laughs> <On> friday <laughs> anyway uh, what's up how can i help um so you know i've talked on here a couple of times about um speed in the or and trying to like be quicker with cases more efficient and you know working with that um and something that has come up um, at one of the hospitals I operate at. Um, obviously, the hospital, I take bigger cases there. Um, my elective, pra- I've been, you know, in about the year I've been here, my elective practice really hasn't picked up yet. So I'm still doing like bigger trauma cases. And I mean, they take a long time. You know, I don't have any help. I don't have a PA. I don't have a first assist. You know, if I'm lucky, I'll get a good scrub tech. But a lot of times it's like the brand new scrub tech. So the cases are taking a while. Um, and 
because I'm not in like the highest volume group, there's not a lot of repetition because obviously when you do repetition, you get faster, but I don't have that. So um, there's been a situation in particular with one OR nurse who will comment on my cases in the sense like, you know, you should bring smaller cases here because you're scaring everyone. Um, You know, everyone's nervous because all you do is bring big cases here. And um, I had done a case, um, like a general case, not in my subspecialty, like six weeks ago. And, um, you know, it's part of like hospital protocol. I got proctoring for that, so I did. And at the end, um, you know, my proctor was actually around, so I called him in for something just quickly. Mm-hmm. And this nurse made a comment in the hour on Friday, like, we heard you had to call him in, and it took three hours, and he went home and came back, and none of that was true. He was in the building, and between the two of us, it took five minutes. Um, but did the rest of the case, closing two giant wounds by myself without any help, take a long time? Yes. So every time I go to that OR, I tell myself, because um, I'm more of like a verbal processor, like I say what I'm thinking out loud, yeah. I always tell myself, don't talk to them like keep your thoughts to yourself but after like hour four I'm bored too and then I start talking and I feel like I invite these discussions in about my surgical times um and you know it's not oh oh so that this nurse in regards to that case said you shouldn't be doing those cases here and I was like it's really none of your business what I do because I'm like more than qualified to do this case um on the other hand that nurse also seems to be my biggest cheerleader where he'll look at things and he's like, wow, that's so good. The other surgeons don't do it this way. Um, if, if anyone thinks he'll sort of like jump to my defense, but then he also like instigates. And then what ends up happening is, so on Friday, I did a case that I thought would not take me that long. It took forever. Um, mm-hmm. The struggle was real <laughs> during part of it. Um, but the end was great. Like everything looks really, really awesome. And, you know, because of these interactions about my case time, instead of feeling proud of what I'm doing when I'm going home, I'm feeling, like, upset and anxious about it. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, everyone's talking about my case times. Like, why am I inviting this discussion? Because, you know, there's other surgeons that take long. But if you don't talk about it, then I don't feel like there's room for anyone to comment. Um and so initially what will happen is when I'm done with the case, I'm like, all right, I did great. This is like what I learned. This is what I'll do better next time, whatever. And then by the time I get home, I'm just full of all these like negative thoughts of, oh, well, now the whole OR is going to talk about it and they're going to make all these comments. And Why did you invite these? So instead of feeling good about what I'm doing, I'm feeling like anxious and upset about it. Okay, so really, this is interesting because I think we can actually put two things in the circumstance. We can put whatever the nurse says, right? Like that can go up in the circumstance. So in this case, it sounds like he said, like, you should bring smaller cases. You shouldn't be doing these cases here. You're scaring people. Like if we can put those things in quotes, we'll put that up in the circumstance line. And then it sounds like, you know, the case ensues. And then at some point you're talking, you're saying words about the case Mm -hmm. and which is totally, you know, like saying words is 
perfectly reasonable. And then after, after that, you're like, wait a second, I shouldn't have been saying that stuff because now everybody's going to be talking about it and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But they do talk about it. Like I'll find out weeks later, like, oh, we heard such and such happened in the case. I'm like, you all have nothing better to do with your time than talk about my cases. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, has anybody ever been in an OR that wasn't like being in (laughs) high school? That's kind of sort of common in, I think, operating rooms. It's super small group of people, kind of tight knit. People kind of um, get real gossipy and, you know, you're seeing the same people. There are cliques. It's, It's totally like high school. Anyway, um, But what I'd like to experiment with, because it sounds like the thing that's upsetting to you is this idea about the OR, you know, discussing you after you have said something like, you know, whatever at the end of the case. Yeah, because you know what people don't realize is like these long cases take a toll on me too, right? I never scrub out and I never take a break and I always tell myself I should be better about it but I don't right I'm so like engrossed in the case that I just keep going yeah but so at some point I'll be like man I'm really tired or like my back hurts are we done yet um and so on one hand I'm like well I should stop saying that but on the other hand I'm also tired of being in the OR I just yeah. don't like that it then invites this discussion especially I was just um, signing all my off notes for the month and the entire month I actually only did small cases there including like three in the few days before this big one. So then I get really irritated when they tell me you only bring big cases here. I'm like, what about all the little ones I do here too? Well, I mean, because that's life. Like people always make shit up. Always. Yeah. Um, But I think that was kind of the straw when that nurse was kind of talking about that case I did a few weeks ago where I was like, all those facts are complete wrong so now you're spreading rumors in the LR and then it goes back to well if I didn't say like my back hurts and I'm tired would he have felt that it was appropriate to you know say anything in my room okay so I'm going to put in the circumstance for the people who can see this hopefully um in the circumstance I'm going to say I I said my back my back hurts I'm tired And the RN says something like, you know, you shouldn't be doing these cases here. So we'll put that in the C line, indicating what people are saying, you and them. And then the the thought that you said was like, now the whole OR is going to be talking about me and my cases. And then the feeling you said kind of upset, anxious. So I'm imagining that's the problem is like what you're kind of going through after all of this, like when you're feeling upset and anxious. So then what do you do when you're feeling that way? Um, Well, I, so for the thoughts, I actually think it's twofold. I think it's um, whatever you wrote. And then I also think it's me going back and saying, I shouldn't have said anything. Um, But yeah, when, when that happens, obviously I feel anxious. Um, I will be like upset about my cases. I'll sort of go into the snowball because obviously, you know, I've talked enough about here about how I really don't like the job I'm in. And then I'll say, you know, it'll turn into this whole thing. Like, see, everything here is terrible because 
not only do my partner stuff, the clinic stuff, but the OR stuff too. And then like Saturday morning, I woke up and had a hard time going back to sleep. So all I could do was think about these interactions with the OR like the day before. Okay. So just for the people who can't see the model, I'm just going to reiterate this because it's super important to see what our feelings then drive us to do, as we know, because of this whole paradigm is that when you feel a certain way, your feeling is going to drive actions or inaction. So in this case, when somebody feels anxious or upset, then the action is, is, you know, judging yourself, which is basically, I shouldn't have said anything. That's a self-judgment. Then judging the job is terrible. Not only is the clinic terrible, but the OR is terrible and it's all terrible. And I hate this place and I wish I wasn't here sort of stuff. And then you can't sleep and then just think like kind of in that ruminating loop about all of it. (laughs) It just, like you said, snowball effect. Think about all of it like a snowball effect. Um, And so then what's super interesting, oops, I'm sorry, you guys, you know me enough by now that I can't do two things at one time. Um, Snowball effect. So this is so interesting. It's such a great model to do because look at what the T line is. The thought line is saying now the whole OR is going to talk about me. But really what you end up doing is like a lot of talking about yourself to yourself in your own head. It's talk, 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 talk. Like how painful is that? Yeah, I never thought of that. Yep. So you basically become the one. (laughs) Um, I, let's see, I'm going to keep these, um, pronouns the same here. Let's see. You become the one who talks about you. Now, maybe it's true that the OR is talking about you. Maybe they aren't. We all know that the OR is like a complete gossip factory. So that's kind of like expected, But here's the funny thing about human beings. Human beings were such egomaniacs. We we always interpret these circumstances in reference to ourselves. So we're constantly throwing things back on ourselves. And anything we say is literally a projection of something that is going on inside, unless we're super evolved. So like this OR nurse who's making these comments... That's projection from that person's ego. And then they receive the information back and make it mean something about them. So we're like all in our own little orbit around ourselves, interacting with each other, which is so funny because when we think about it, we think, oh, they're thinking about me in a certain way, but they're not like they, they might be thinking about something that has to do with you, but they're making it mean something about them. Almost always. Isn't that super fascinating? Yep. I hope that makes sense the way I said it. So we spend so much time worrying about what other people think about us. <laughs> In reality, nobody cares. Like, no, <laughs> they just care about themselves. So that's kind of refreshing <laughs> to know that. And unless this OR nurse is some evolved form of consciousness I can't imagine that that person's he's definitely not 
so it's just such a weird thing because if someone else tries to talk about me, he will like come to my defense right away. But then I've noticed of late, he's been the one sort of instigating that. Um, and, you know, like not listening to me about stuff in the OR. So it's like it's gotten really frustrating, the whole thing. This is why I love the tool of imagining what the other person's model might be, because we never have to be right about it. But just imagining what it could be just helps us to see the likelihood of them making something mean something about them. It's either judgment about themselves, they're worried about them, they're worried about, they're scared, they're their ability to get home on time. They're worried about how their, like how their experience is kind of connecting to everything that's going on, which I find like very, um, just to kind of have that in the forefront of your mind, it's a relief because people, they just aren't that invested in us most of the time. So I guess let me ask you this. What about this are you having a hard time with? Because I think what you're doing is completely human and we all do it. We all have these kind of like debriefs with ourselves where things spiral out of control. And I don't think that there's a problem with like having that happen. But where I see things kind of going sideways is when we start to believe what our brains are telling us. So you tell me, what is, when you look at this model, what's painful about it? Um, more that I'm letting someone else's words, like, cloud my experience about a case, or, um, you know, at the end, all that matters, the outcome and how the patient does, it really doesn't matter how you got there. Um, so instead of focusing on the end result, which was good, I'm focused on the journey and what other people are saying about the journey. And I feel like that's detracting from any positivity I may inject into my otherwise very negative work environment. Okay. So then what do you want to do about it? Um, I would like to, well, first of all, Personally, I would like to stop commenting about myself in the OR. Um, but, you know, I would like to leave these cases, like, being proud of myself instead of feeling, like, almost ashamed. Right. But, okay, so let's just get a little clarification here because it sounded like when you first talked about it that you you are proud of yourself at the end of the case. Mm-hmm. But then it's really on the drive home and like things start to kind of go sideways, sort of in a delayed fashion. Yeah. Okay. So are you talking about then like kind of, kind of um, having that decision at the end of the case, like this, this went great. And like just letting that stand and not doing that whole snowball debrief afterwards. Right. Yeah. I would like to just keep that initial thought of, Hey, you know, this went great. That's all that matters. So I do, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, of course, saying, hey, what did I learn? What could I do better? That's totally fine. But I just don't want to have this, like, spiral snowball about other things other people are saying to me in the OR. Yeah. So I have two ideas here, and I just want to throw these out here for you guys. 
The first thought is, is I, I think it's a sign of absolute strength and just growth mindset. Anytime somebody is like evaluating what they just did and trying to say, okay, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, how could I do this differently? What would I do to blah, blah, blah. Like, how could I learn from what I just did? So I think there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying that sort of stuff. And in fact, it's the sign, it's a sign of strength and a good leader because it's really inviting other people to do the same thing. When you, when the, when the, the leader of the pack is taking a moment for self-reflection after something as serious as surgery on human beings, then, I mean, I think that's an incredible sign of strength. But anyway, so what about just throwing this out there, the idea of not just like, what could I have done differently, but what could we uh, as a team have done differently? Um, I mean, I will address that with them, like when it happens, usually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So part of what you were talking about was like the things, the words that you're saying in the OR, whether it's during the case or at the end, you somehow regret that. And then wish you hadn't like spoken, which I would really invite you to consider that you just get to say whatever word you want. You get to say whatever word you want and they can just be out there and stand and not have any more impact than that. Like they don't have to come back and then have you be worrying about what you said. Like you don't, don't, I'm just trying to say like, if that's what you desire, then fine. If you desire to not be talking during the operating room or, or saying what's on your mind or whatever, that's completely fine and up to you. But I also just want you to consider that you're allowed to say whatever the fuck you want and let them kind of like let the chips fall where they may and not beat yourself up afterwards. Like that's also an option. Yeah, and that's the thing is I would really prefer to say whatever I want. It is my OR, um, but I yeah. just don't know. You know, I just don't like that. And it's in particular like one nurse and one scrub tech. Um, and the scrub tech, I don't – I kind of just ignore him because he's really good and really otherwise helpful to me. But mm-hmm. with this nurse, it's just, you know, I don't know why anytime I say something, he feels like it's an invitation to comment on my cases and things that I do there. I mean, one of the big cases I did – I'm apparently one of only three surgeons in my city who does that case. So like, yeah, no one has any experience with it because I'm, you know, one of the only people doing it. You know, I feel like I should be able to say whatever I want, but I also don't feel that, you know, this nurse should also feel inclined to comment about things that really he has no business talking about. Okay. So now it's like a patient safety issue, but we haven't had that. So, yeah. So the, This is so good because now we're kind of getting down into kind of a deeper cranny in the whole, you know, the whole situation, which is, okay, you want to say what you want, but you don't want this other adult in the room to say what he wants, (laughs) which is the, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So here's because I feel like I'm allowed to comment on myself, but you as someone who is not a surgeon should not be commenting on what I'm doing when you actually have no idea what I'm doing. Right. So that in your, that's a completely valid opinion, but the truth of the matter is, is that another adult just gets to think and do what they want. 
And this is like a manual thing, right? Where we're like, well, I get to say what I want because it's my OR, but that does not mean it's an invitation for you to say what you want. So unless you have somehow set that up as a boundary, which I, you know, doesn't seem necessary really because people are just really chatty in the operating room, it seems like, um, often. And I can see how that might be very attractive reason to not want to be so chatty in the OR because it does invite, it sets the tone for other people then to like, be like, oh, well, we get to say what we want in this operating room because the leader is saying what she wants. So I guess I can see how that would be like a little bit muddy for people. Um, But let's, let's just say you, you get to say whatever you want. And he's an adult who gets to say whatever he wants. Is there a way for you to feel good about yourself and not beat the shit out of yourself and not believe anything this guy has to say, even if he says words? Right, right. And that's what I, you know, obviously that's what I want to talk about or work on. Um, you know, my thing is I feel like I'm commenting about myself. So if anyone in the room wants to comment about themselves, that's fine. Like if they want to say they're hungry or they're tired or they want to like get home to watch such and such, that's fine. But I feel like when they are talking poorly about me in my own room, it's kind of undermining what I'm doing as like the leader in the room. So on one hand, yes, I do you know, see this point of, okay, well, if I'm going to say whatever I want, I can't tell anyone else to not think what they want. And I should just sort of have a different thought process about it. But at the same time, I also feel like it's undermining what I'm doing, like while I'm actively operating on a human being. Right. So, and I, I really want to be clear here. I don't think you should do anything differently. I don't think you should, you, you know, you don't have to do anything, but just if we get down to two adult humans just thinking and acting in their own lives, we can't control what other people do. Mm -hmm. So even if, like, I agree with you, I think it's really shitty to undermine you in the operating room. I do. But if we can't control him doing that, then how can, how can you still feel good about yourself and what you're in the work you're doing, irrespective of what he says. Right. Um, so I guess that would be like an intentional model for that part. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Yes. Okay. So how do you get to feel good about yourself? Even when he says you shouldn't be doing these cases here. Um, <laughs> tell him to F off because the hospital is the hospital tour. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's an option because that's exactly what I was thinking in my head. They're not going to be done at the surgery center. They're going to be done at the hospital. But um, okay. Um, I mean, that's that's exactly what I would be saying in my head. I wouldn't say it out loud because well, I like I to have, it out you know, loud. So you know, I would be like, well, "Fuck you." <laughs> I didn't say that part out loud, but I did say that's what the hospital is for out loud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Okay, so um, how do you get to still feel good? Um, by not beating myself up over what other people have said. Yeah, 
So my my very, very dear friend, Meg Grizel, who's an orthopedic surgeon too, just this week said to me, nobody else is qualified to have an opinion about you. Yes. And I was like, damn it, you're right. So just like that thought, it really resonated with me. I was like, that is so true. Nobody else is qualified to have an opinion about you. Like he can say anything he wants. It doesn't mean you have to believe any of it. Mm-hmm. What would be yeah. like, what would you say in your words? What would be resonating for you? Um, That the outcome was good. So it doesn't matter how you got there. Yes, like an ends justifies the means sort of thing. Yeah. And honestly, that's the way I was trained in residency and my first fellowship. It was not on efficiency and speed. It was interrupt decision making and sort of doing things perfectly, which is not always a good thing. But I mean, that's how I was trained. There's a reason I do it this way. Okay, so if you think the thought, the outcome was good, so it doesn't matter how I got there. So um, when you think that thought, how do you feel? Like more empowered about it instead of victimized? Yes. And when you feel empowered, what do you do? Not ruminate and not, like, feel sad about it and upset and, you know all the things that come as being upset. That's right. You don't ruminate. You don't judge yourself. You don't get upset about it. You don't believe this other guy. You tell him to F off in your mind. You, you know, like you have such liberty when you really, really believe that the work you did was good work. I mean, the thing is, there are, obviously there's like, surgeon specific factors that make the case go longer but you know like I mentioned before I don't have a PA I don't have a first assist I get like the new staff in my room there's like things beyond my control that cause the journey (laughs) during the OR to be what it is that's exactly right which further proves the point that the only person that's qualified to judge what's happening and what's like the outcome is you You are the only person who is qualified to judge things that are happening in your own life. And and nobody else in the room is the surgeon. Nobody else in the room is the one doing the actual business of surgery there. Like nobody can, like they can say what they want. It's just stupid. It's it's words that don't mean anything. (laughs) Unless of course they're just completely flattering all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And they're a hundred percent (laughs) true. That's the thing. He's 50% flattering and 50% a pain in the ass. (laughs) Yeah. I think the real beauty in this is just really realizing how much power we give over to other people when we listen to what they have to say and we believe it. Mm -hmm. It's like we take that crap in and we hold onto it like it's Linus's blanket and we don't want (laughs) to let it go. But, But it doesn't have to be like that. Like they can just say stuff. And we could be like, okay, you're an idiot. Like, what a stupid <laughs> thing to say. He's so clueless, like clearly. Yeah. But we don't do that. We 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 all turn everything on ourselves and we make it mean something about ourselves until you do this work and you become more evolved and you're like, oh, well, that's, I don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm completely free here to just 
have my own back in the job that I'm doing. Nothing else matters. Yeah, because like I said, there's so much like bad stuff going on with work that I feel like a good surgical outcome should be a bright spot and I should look at it as a bright spot instead of like, oh, all this other stuff happened that is dimming the shine. I like that. Like intentionally viewing something, like finding those little golden nuggets is important because when you view things as bad, your brain only wants to see all the things as bad. It puts the bad filter in the reticular activating system and then everything is bad. It's like it's impossible to see anything good. So when you're intentionally trying to find these little golden nuggets of the goodness that are happening throughout your day, it opens up your brain's ability to see more and more and more positive things, which is fantastic because then your days don't suck quite so bad. It doesn't mean the bad stuff goes away. It's just we're able to see more of the good stuff. Right. Um, But it takes practice, like all of it. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it's like I know that this is the intentional model, and I kind of knew it even on Saturday when I woke up upset, but I feel like sometimes it's hard to practice it. Um, So I told myself the whole weekend, you know, it doesn't matter how you got there. It's the outcome. You did a great job. I sent it to, like, other surgeons. They thought it looked great, too. Um, but you know, sometimes I feel like even when you know it's the intentional model and you know that's what you should be thinking, it's hard to convince yourself that, you know, that's correct. It is. And I love that you're practicing that. And I would just encourage you also for anybody who's doing that and you're going to your intentional model and it's just not feeling authentic. It's not really landing for you. You're just not able to believe it. Then I would suggest that you kind of just meet yourself where you are. And just allow yourself to be where you are without beating yourself up. So like, just be there with this dude talking crap and all the things. Just be there and just be in those moments without heaping it on yourself that, you know, I shouldn't have said, I shouldn't have talked about my back hurting. I shouldn't have talked about being tired. No, that's nonsense. You get to say whatever you want. Like you can practice even like baby steps just sort of like accepting where you are in the default model before you um, move on to the intentional model and just really allow yourself to be there in that discomfort without adding to it by judging yourself and beating yourself up. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Stuffing. I will give you a full report on the Bodine Stuffing that I do. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. That was super good. Who's next? Do we have any other? We have quite a few people, I think, signed in today. So let's see. Who else has something to talk about? Taking volunteers. Taking volunteers. Do we have any other volunteers? We have probably time for at least one more, if not two, if we go fast. Okay, here we go. Oh, these are such great turkey themes here, Thanksgiving themes. (laughs) Hi, Turducken. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. We might actually try a turducken this year. I'm not sure. (laughs) That is awesome. 
So we have this thing in ortho called a turducken. I don't do it myself, but it's, it's a cancer reconstruction procedure where if you take out somebody's like whole femur, you take a vascularized fibula and you stick it inside of a cadaver femur and then plug that into the defect where the osteosarcoma or whatever was removed. And, um, one of my partners calls that a turducken. So that's all I can think about. <laughs> Human bones. Anywho, how's it going? Good. Um, all right. So something I've noticed is that because I, I mean, I've been working at this for years, but the whole trying not to, so if something's bothering me, I tend to carry that with me. So Say I have something that, so for example, I had a case that I think went okay, but there's something I'm worried about as far as the healing process goes, you know, Mm -hmm. and now there's nothing for me to do, but wait and see and take care of them in the post-op period. But I have a really hard time not carrying that with me, like all day for like two weeks, you know what I mean? (laughs) I totally and. Um, and usually it gets better as the, as the weeks go on, but when it first happens, like if I'm not feeling constantly anxious and worried about it, it's like, I feel like I'm somehow doing something wrong and I'm not caring enough or something like that. If that makes sense. This makes so, sense. Yeah. So that, that whole, like letting that go, but knowing that you still care, care and you're going to take care of it, but I don't have to carry it with me every moment. Oh my gosh, this is such a great question. And I have a question for you too. Yes. Is there any part of this that is superstitious where like, possibly don't (laughs) worry, there will for sure be a horrible outcome. But if you do worry, it's almost protective. Like it'll protect you from that bad thing happening. Yes, I think there is part of that, <laughs> yeah, if I'm being honest. I do this, like, all the time, like, all, yeah. all, all the time. And this has been a really, really interesting thing to try to work through. And there is actually a part of the brain that I cannot remember what it is right now, but I will find it for you. Andrew Huberman talks about it. There's an actual... Isn't that the sleep guy, too? He's the he's neuroscience. He's just, like... Uh guru. So he, there's this, um, little switch we have in the brain that I really, really have to find the details on this for you. Cause it's really, um, important for this particular question. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with every time you allow yourself to do that worry, it kind of strengthens the little, this little circuit. Mm-hmm. Every time you stop yourself and intentionally like redirect Mm-hmm. It strengthens the opposite side of this little circuit. And so I do this all the time. So for example, like these superstitions are really bad. I'll think if I get up to pee in the middle of the night and I don't flush the toilet, mm-hmm. then there's going to be something bad that happens with the pa- the case that I did that day. But if I do <laughs> yeah. flush the toilet, it won't. <laughs> yeah. so sometimes I won't flush the toilet because I don't want to wake people up or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I know this isn't about me and I'm going to circle back to you in a second, but every time I go there and I think, okay, no brain, you're doing that thing in that little part of the brain that Huberman says, we need to practice not flushing Mm -hmm. the toilet. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, and it's so uncomfortable. And then I flush mm-hmm. the toilet. <laughs> anyway, so that's why I was wondering, is there any of that kind of thing? Does that resonate with you as something that might be going on? It does in a way, you know, as you said that, I, I think a few things clicked. So I think part of it comes from like um, feeling guilty, you know, like, so if I, if I go about it and say, well, you know, I did what I did and it might not turn out great, but that's okay. Like that, that, um, so I was also raised Catholic mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like, um, yeah. uh, you know, if you're not a good girl and you don't repent, then, you know, God might not do what you want him to do or whatever, you know what I mean? And there's, there's probably some of that, but I definitely feel like if I am, somehow my worrying will help the results when really it won't at this point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because I made yeah. the decisions I made during surgery and now I have to wait. And if it doesn't turn out well, then I have to figure out to fix it when that time comes. And, and really what I do in this in-between time is not going to make any difference, you know? Yeah. It, oh my gosh. Do I know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's set up a model for it. We'll just say case, whatever the case is. And then the action that you're doing is you're worrying. Mm-hmm. And what's the feeling that's driving the action? Um, uh, gosh. Um, there's some, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complicated things in there. There's some inadequacy. There's some like guilt like feeling bad about if that person didn't get as good of a result you know because of what I did um okay there's also like like I don't know like I don't know so are you if it's guilt you mentioned guilt like three times so that makes me think that guilt is probably ranking high in the feelings because it is multi-factorial but you know if we're just trying to see what's dominant here is maybe guilt is up there. So what, mm-hmm. what's the thought? Did you, are you afraid that it's like the bad outcome already happened, even though you won't know for two weeks? Yes, I guess so. Or mm-hmm. are you thinking, cause is it the patient didn't get the best care they could have gotten or I didn't do a good enough job or what is it? Yeah. Like maybe I didn't do a good enough job. Okay. Yeah. I could have done a better job. I, oh, that's a real nice thought. Could, whoops, could, could have done a better job. Ooh, that's a super good one. I could have done a better job. How many of us can relate to that? I'm sure (laughs) everybody. And so then you feel guilty. And when you feel guilty, then now we're worrying to assuage the guilt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what else do you do? <laughs> um, well, I don't, in, I don't enjoy like, cause I operated on Thursday and most of this weekend I was kept finding myself revisiting this. And so I didn't enjoy my weekend as much as I would have, you know, um, And for example, you're distracted. So then I like did something stupid. I forget exactly what it was like 
oh, I was trying to rearrange some shelves and, you know, I wasn't really paying attention. So one fell on my toe, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I totally know what you somewhere mean. else. Yeah. So then our result ends up, okay, so you feel guilty. And so then to like kind of assuage that guilt, you worry. And then you don't enjoy your weekend because you're like spending your whole your experience of your life is basically living in this case and all the, the ways in which you could have done better or the right would have mm-hmm. been better off with X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And so basically you then like, you don't even know the result yet, but you've already, you're living in a reality where the job was not good enough. Right. Okay. Yep. I think this is so relatable. I think too, especially if there's a little superstition involved, mm-hmm. um, there, that I think is kind of that, that circuitry that is in the older parts of the brain that are there for negative bias there. I mean, our brains are worried, are, are, um, wired to imagine negative outcomes there. That's right. Mm-hmm. Human neuro biology. So it's not a big surprise that this is happening and it's probably why it's so relatable, but Mm -hmm. the guilt around it is interesting to me as Mm -hmm. if like you need to be superhuman and never make a mistake or never have any sort of like latitude to not be perfect. Right. Yes. And that's a a common theme that comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Even though I think it's different situations, they boil down to the same thing a lot. They really do, because it boils down to the way we're conditioned, right? They mm-hmm. boil down to, like you, you mentioned growing up in the Catholic church, which I did too. So I totally understand that. It's like, whoa, you really got to earn shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to earn it. And it, I guess it just, that's not a blanket statement. It depends on what type of Catholic Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of that sort of stuff that kind of contributes to your conditioning. And then there's the whole, like, you know, being a woman in Western world sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. that the difference between if we get our validation internally, Mm -hmm. just know that we're worthwhile because we're human and we take up space and we have this beautiful divine consciousness that's so unique and so precious. Like when you believe in that, then the external validation becomes less important. But at the end of the day, this is the reality that a lot of people live with that Mm -hmm. we're looking for external validation. We want Mm -hmm. things to be perfect. We want people to have good outcomes. We want to be liked. We want to not have conflict. Mm -hmm. So how do we live with that paradox? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Like what I want. So if we flip into like a more intentional model, Mm -hmm. what I want to be like is I did the best I could in that moment. And that, you know, the patient's not, we're not in the OR anymore. We're done. Now we just wait. And then whatever comes to be comes to be, and we'll deal with it. Then we don't need to go over it in my head right now. Yeah, (laughs) you're absolutely right. And so that just requires 
practice, practice, practice. Mm -hmm. Every time you catch yourself, you know, putting up a shelf and not thinking about the shelf and you're thinking about this patient and the worry, it's like, okay, there's another opportunity to stop yourself and intentionally practice having Mm -hmm. your own back. Practice Mm -hmm. relying on your internal validation. Practice, you know, really kind of like saying, oh, I totally understand my brain's wired for negative bias. This is a biological response that's happening here. There's nothing wrong with me. Like it's, you have to just get super intentional about it a bazillion times. Yeah. And it does get easier. And um, I just want to add a couple of other things. Number one, I always feel like I, I forget the part of the equation where the human body is just so freaking amazing that it can do really, really awesome with mediocre surgery. Mm-hmm. Isn't that phenomenal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying you did mediocre surgery, but I think mm-hmm. we've all been there when we thought, oh, I could have done a little better. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And then still the patient does flipping amazing. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, so there must be more at play than my golden hands. Right. And that's where I think a little of the superstition comes in. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, So there's always an opportunity to see the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And then, um, of course, there was one other thing that I wanted to say, and now I'm forgetting what it was. Um, Hang on just a second. It was. Oh, this is something that I actually do. Because this, I, I live in this model that you just described like a lot. Well, not so much now that I walked away from my private practice, but I used to, Mm -hmm. um, I would be so worried about something going wrong after the fact, right. After the patient's like discharged from the hospital Mm -hmm. and I would have to literally like have a conversation with myself and say, even if this complication was happening, would I need to do something about it right now? Right. In nine times out of 10, maybe 99% of the time, it's the answer is no. Correct. Yeah. And in fact, only once have I had somebody that was like legit bleeding, like super bad that I had to mm-hmm. do something right now. And so I think that that also can be kind of grounding too. It's like, oh, okay, well, shoot. Well, even if this was happening, do I need to take care of it at like 12 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon? Right. No, I can just put up the shelf right now. Mhm. Exactly. Yeah. Mhm. So we just have to choose the, we have to choose the discomfort, right? Like we can choose to live in the discomfort of the guilt and the and the the default model. Or we can choose to live in the discomfort of doing all this intentional work. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like one kind of maintains the status quo and the other has the potential to bring you to a new level. Right. So I think it's really up to everybody what they, yeah, what adventure they want to choose. Yeah. And when I really sit and think on it, I, I mean, I have come a long way and, but it is hard because that conditioning was there for like 35 years. Yeah. (laughs) So it's so true. The conditioning's there. And honestly, if we're really being realistic, 
we're always going to have a human brain as long as we're alive. And unless we become like Jesus or Eckhart Tolle or Buddha, we're just going to have this human brain that we're contending with. And it sounds like you're making the best of it. Sorry, that was my daughter in the background. That's okay. And daughters are always invited to this to this party, except for when lots of efforts. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think, I mean, not to get like, um, I mean, that's what makes us grow and reach that next level. I think a lot of elements of spirituality and religions kind of, you know, work against what human nature is, like, you know, the, the reflexes, you know. It seems that way. And I mean, if you would indulge me for the last four minutes, kind of like the new direction that I'm going personally is in this whole idea about them being one and the same, like just the absolute astounding uniqueness of every person's spirit and like Mm -hmm. how that ended up in this, like in my particular body or in your particular body or anybody it's, and then just to look at the body itself and how complicated and elegant the whole thing is. I'm like, wow, this really does seem kind of divine to me. It really does. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I don't know. It's, it's super wild. So Kelly and I are going to do a podcast on this retreat we went on last week to talk about some reflections around that, but it's really, um, kind of a sort of a mystical experience we could be having if you really wanted to look at it that way this mm-hmm. the, the earth journey you know yeah mm. anyway anyway yeah but I, <laughs> well, the one last comment I want to say is it is so so hard to not seek out external validation <laughs> I realized that like that has been such a big part of my life and how I reduce my anxieties um to find to go internal instead of external is like a huge challenge and it it like you said it's another form of discomfort it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. right now it doesn't feel like good enough yet yes I think those words you just spoke hit everybody in our group and I hope everybody listens to this back because what you just said was so important. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is kind of the pain that a lot of us are living in is this trap of needing external validation for our existence. So that means if we don't have it, it becomes an existential crisis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how it Mm -hmm. feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then what, like, where do we, where do we then draw or start to cultivate our own internal validation system? And I think it starts with just having conversations like this, where you just recognize first, have the awareness of what you have been living with, you know, noticing that. And then starting to ask questions around it. Huh. That's interesting. I wonder why. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, I can see why. I can totally see why. It's the house mm-hmm. I grew up in. 
It's the country I grew up in. Mm -hmm. It's the way I was trained. I mean, think about it. A lot of our training is like repeating a childhood where we're a hundred percent dependent on our attendings for survival. (laughs) And it's like, it's a real validate. It's like external validation. Like you live or die by it, by them yelling at you or not yelling at you. I don't know. I could go on and on and we're at six o'clock, but what you just said was awesome. And I really hope people hear it and feel the call to then start asking the questions about how do I cultivate my own internal guidance system? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Turducken. Can you please report if you do a Turducken and let us know how it is? Okay, I will. It's a okay. deboning process that, that intimidates me. <laughs> Probably if I was ortho, it wouldn't. But So I can't stand to, to handle meat unless I have gloves on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay happy thanksgiving everybody thanks for joining. Right. Bye. bye